Well, in the fall of 2002, Rick Garman's daughter, Katie, became the victim of a date rape. She was 18 years old at the time, and she was just a freshman in college. And over the next 14 months or so, the scars and the wounds began to fester in her and in the whole family, and it was destroying them. Her father, Rick, began to develop a plan to kill the man who had deep, so deeply wounded his daughter and his family. And it became a real obsession with him. He would get up, he would go to work, he would think about his plan all day long. He would try and forget it, but he couldn't. He would go home, he would think about it some more, he would lay his head down at night, and he would dream about his plan. His plan was simple. He was going to drive to the campus where it happened, wait for the man to walk by in the parking lot, and then shoot him dead. This was the only way that Rick could think of to get it out of his head and try to bring a semblance of normality back to his family. Have you ever found yourself so obsessed with someone who did you wrong? So obsessed that day and night you allowed hatred to burn and fester inside of you? Well, we are making our way through Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And in last week's text, Jesus gave us some alternatives to retaliation. They were three, live with humility, give with generosity, and serve other people. And today, Jesus gives us an alternative to hate. I'm picking up in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 43. This is the word of the Lord. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, that's a pretty famous scripture lesson, isn't it? We've heard it before. Even folks who have never been to church before have probably heard that. And once again, we're seeing what Jesus has done all along in the Sermon on the Mount. He is raising the bar on what common sense tells us to do or what the law in Hebrew scripture tells us to do. And he's just taking it to a whole new level. Level. We're seeing what Jesus expects of people who follow him. And he starts this passage by actually quoting a scripture from Hebrew scripture from Leviticus 19.18 that says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. Now, it's interesting to note that the Old Testament never gives the command to hate your enemy. It's not in there. You can look and look and you won't find it. 
You see, somehow the Pharisees had once again taken what was in the Hebrew Scripture and they had interpreted it and misapplied it. They inferred that it must be okay to hate your enemy. Now, in Jesus' day, think about who the enemies were. The national enemy was the Roman occupiers, an occupying foreign force living in the land of Israel. It was also competing religious groups, those that didn't follow the one true God of Israel. And of course, there were personal enemies, just like in our day. Think about who those groups are for us today. Who are they for you today? I mean it. Think about it for a minute. Who are your enemies? And I think we have to think about it because this is not some abstract concept that Jesus is talking about. This is real, concrete, difficult stuff. Now, by the same token, the Old Testament doesn't give us the command to love our enemy. This is a new commandment that Jesus gives. And as I said, he is really raising the bar this time. He is teaching what life in the kingdom of God is really supposed to look like. He takes us to the heights of heaven and he shows us the glory of God's kingdom where love doesn't trickle like water from a leaky faucet. It gushes like Niagara Falls with 3,200 tons of water pouring over every second of every day. Now, when we look at things from an earthly standard, it's pretty easy for us to understand that we can love people who love us and hate people who hate us. I mean, that comes naturally for us human beings, doesn't it? And Jesus says anyone can do that, why even bad people do that every single day. But Jesus says, I want you to be like your Father in heaven. I want you to love your enemies. And how is loving our enemies loving like God loves? Well, God loves us when we're at our very worst, doesn't he? Romans 5, verses 7 and 8 says it this way, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, Jesus didn't wait until we cleaned up our act and became righteous before going to the cross to die for us. He died on the cross while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies of God, while we were still running from God, while we were still doing every selfish thing that we could think of. God was running after us. God was pursuing us. God never gives up on us. Jesus tells us that God is kind to everyone, to those who love him and to those who hate him. He says he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends his rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. You see, in the air of the atmosphere that God made, it isn't reserved for only people who love God, isn't it? 
Thank God it isn't, or I might not have breath on some days. God allows evil people to breathe the air just the same as righteous people. You see, God is merciful, kind, and loving to everyone. And the brilliant beauty of a sunset, it isn't displayed only for believers. No atheists and agnostics and people of all religions get to share in that beauty too because God isn't partial in giving the good gifts that God gives. And Jesus is telling us that as sons and daughters of God, we ought to take after our Father in heaven. We ought to have a family resemblance. We ought to love like God loves Psalm 145 says, The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. God made you to love you, and God doesn't play favorites. God has never made a person that God doesn't love. And since he made you, it means God loves you. On this Father's Day, when we think about the relationships that we fathers have, or in more general terms, the relationships that all parents have with their children, it's worth remembering that this relationship is the closest that we have on earth that is to model the relationship that our Heavenly Father has with His children. I remember way back 33, almost 34 years ago when our first daughter was born. I have to tell you, I didn't have any experience with babies back then. I'd never babysat. I was the youngest in my family, all of that kind of stuff. And I'd certainly never changed a diaper before. And I got to tell you that I was kind of nervous about it. I kept thinking about the unpleasant mess of it and the smell that there was going to be. And then I remember within the first week after she was born, I got the chance to change my daughter's diaper. You see, she'd made a little mess inside of her diaper. And what shocked me completely was that it didn't smell at all. And I thought to myself, oh my gosh, my baby's you-know-what doesn't even stink. <laughs> this isn't going to be so bad after all. My baby must be perfect. How many of you know that you've got to start eating a little food, not just mother's milk, before it begins to stink? How many of you know that there's no such thing as a perfect baby? I mean, yeah, your baby is perfect in some ways, but no baby is perfect. I mean, after all, babies are little human beings. And all we have to do is remember back to when our baby first hit that terrible twos or when they first became a teenager, and you know it's true, right? I got to tell you, I love each of my three girls with an everlasting love that can never be broken, even though I know full well that none of them are perfect any more than I. Their father is perfect, and I can assure you I'm not. We are all human. And God knew that about us before he ever even created us. He knew all of the stupid, rebellious things we would ever do, and yet he still made us. 
He still loves us with a perfect, unending Father's love. You see, God showed his ultimate great love for us while we were still sinners. That proves God's love for us. Now, if we are so imperfect, you might be asking yourself, how is it even possible that we can be capable of loving someone else, someone who loves us, let alone our enemy? Well, Jesus tells us how to love our enemies, and Scripture also tells us why, and it tells us how. We love because God first loved us, is what it says in John um, 4.19. I'm sorry, 1 John 4.19. We know that God is love and that God created us in his image. And within each one of us is the capacity to love like God loves, even our enemies. And when God's love actually really gets a hold of us, it sets us free to love other people, even our enemies. Now, I think a lot of times we get confused about what love really is. We think that love is a feeling we have. We talk about falling in love. Sometimes we even talk about falling out of love. But love is more than a feeling. Love is an action. Love is what we do. It's what we do even when we don't feel like doing it. And so what are some of the actions, what are some of the ways that we can show love even to our enemies? Well, in Luke's version of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which can be found in chapter 6 of Luke, Jesus' words are expanded just a little bit from what we find in Matthew. And there Jesus says, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who mistreat you. Jesus gives us four positive action verbs that can be put into practice as we try to love our enemies. Love, do good, bless, pray. Let's look at each one of those. First, we are to love our enemies. And love means working for what is best in another person's life, no matter what. Love means meeting another person's needs. It means giving a person what they need and not what they deserve. I mean, think about it. If you got what you deserved, if I got what I deserved, you wouldn't be here and neither would I, would we? And so we are to love others. We can choose to love. Second, we're to do good. You see, rather than returning evil for evil, return good for evil. Do something, doing something good is going to change your attitude towards your enemy. Doing something nice for them, even if it's in secret, will change you. Say something nice to them. Don't just react to the way you've been treated. Instead, be in control of your actions and do good. Third, Jesus says we are to bless people who curse us, to speak positively to them, to affirm them. We're to build other people up, not tear them down, even if we've been put down. So don't get caught up in the vicious cycle of returning negative for negative. Break the cycle instead. You see, when somebody criticizes you, don't criticize them back. If someone gosses about you, don't gossip about them in return. Bless them. 
Give them a compliment. Give them the benefit of the doubt. You know, it's people who are hurt who end up hurting other people. And the reason they are hurting you is because they are hurting themselves. So bless them. And finally, we are told to pray for people who mistreat us. You see, you can't pray for someone and remain hating them at the same time. That's another action that's going to change you from the inside out. Jesus told a parable one time about two enemies, one of whom had a terrible misfortune happen to him and the other who put love into practice. You see, there was a man traveling down the road from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was jumped by robbers who beat him, stripped him, robbed him, and left him for dead by the side of the road. One man saw him and decided to pass by on the other side. A second man saw him and also decided to pass on by. And then a third man, one who was his enemy, happened to come by. But he had pity on the man. He loved him. He didn't do to him what his enemy deserved. He met his needs. He did good to him. He bandaged him. He put oil on his wounds. He put him on his own donkey, took him to an inn, looked after him all night, and then the next morning he paid for his needs, his expenses, out of his own pocket, out of his own hard-earned cash. He blessed him, I'm sure. He treated him like a human being, not like an enemy. And although Luke doesn't say specifically that the Samaritan prayed for the man, I'm pretty sure he did. Don't you think so? Why should we treat someone who has wronged us with goodness when they've caused us so much harm? Well, first and foremost, it's because God commands us to. And I think a big part of why God commands it is because he knows that it's the best thing for us. Because you see, as long as you let someone hate you, as long as you hate them in return, they control you. Last week we talked about not letting someone live rent-free in your head. Because you see, if all you can focus on is that person who hurt you, it's slowly going to kill your soul. And every time you ruminate on the hurt, that person has the power to hurt you all over again. But you see, if you let go of the hate, and if instead you replace it with loving kindness, what it does is it restores your soul. It may even restore the relationship. Maybe not, but definitely your own soul will be healed. Years ago, somebody hurt me. And after a long while, I let that hurt fester inside of me until it was eating me up. And so finally, I started to practice the words of Jesus. I tried to see this person as God sees them through eyes of love. I tried to do good toward them, even simple things like greeting them when I saw them, even when they never returned it to me. I refrained from speaking ill of them, and I prayed 
blessings for them. And I have to tell you, it wasn't easy. In fact, it was one of the hardest things I've ever done. And our relationship was never restored. But then relationships are two-way streets, aren't they? And I only had control over one direction of that relationship. Our relationship wasn't restored, but my soul was restored. You see, when you treat an enemy with kindness, it may not change them, but it will change you. Jesus ends this morning's passage from his sermon with a surprising command. He says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. I mean, get real, Jesus, right? Does Jesus really expect me to be perfect? Is he just speaking hyperbolically like he does half the time? Well, the Greek word that's used in this text is teleos. And it means something that has been brought to fullness, that it's been brought to its end, to completeness, to it wants nothing, it is whole. It doesn't mean perfect in the sense that you follow the letter of the law, that you never make a mistake. That's not what teleos means. It means to be holy, to be sanctified, to be perfected in love. You see, God's plan for us is to be perfected in love. And our Wesleyan theology includes a theology of Christian perfection. John Wesley, our founder, describes this as having the mind of Christ, of giving God all of our heart in complete surrender. It means loving God with all of our heart and our neighbor as ourselves. Each year at the ordination service for new elders and deacons in the United Methodist Church, the bishop stands there and he asks questions that have been asked of people to be ordained since way back in Wesley's day, 250 years ago. He asks these questions, are you going on to perfection? And do you expect to be made perfect in love? And are you earnestly seeking it? And the right answer to all of these questions is yes, with the help of God. Because you see, we believe that this is the goal of not just ordained people, but of every Christian to be made perfect in love. It is God's desire that we be made perfect in love. And God can certainly accomplish anything God desires, right? And we can too, with the help of God. In Leviticus Chapter 19, verse 1, God speaks to Moses and he tells him, he says, tell this to the people, be holy because I, the Lord, your God, am holy. And then God goes on to teach his people how they are to treat other people, people like their parents, people like the poor, people like their neighbors. And so you see, holiness is really about how we treat other people. At the heart of the Christian life is the call for us to care for one another. To care and love others is to share in the ministry of Jesus Christ. To love and to care for others is a way of actively using our lives on behalf of others. And here's the thing, it's not always easy. And it's going to cost us something. To love other people is costly. And that's one reason why we so often want to resist it, isn't it? But my friends, it's a process. We are always going on 
to perfection as the bishop asks the question. Going on, it's a process that begins on the day that we give our lives, that we surrender our lives to Christ for the first time, and then it continues for the rest of our earthly life in Christ. It's never something that we achieve like we've arrived, like, oh, I've done that, I could cross that off my list. It's something that God does in us as we submit more and more to him. And so the more perfect in love I am, the more I'm going to be able to love people who mistreat me, people who even hate me. For you see, we are never more like God than when we love those who don't love us back. And sometimes those people are even members of our own family. You know, the deepest need that we as human beings have is to be loved. And so when a family member doesn't love us back, it can cause a lot of hurt and pain. The hardest people to love are often those people that God has placed in our own family. Tim Caldwell, one of our own church members, shares his own journey about how he turned around a hostile, hostile relationship with his own father. Take a look as he shares his testimony. I had a horrible childhood. I came from a broken home with a violent, alcoholic father. He was thrown out of most of my Little League games for threatening referees and umpires. Our once-a-month Saturday visit entailed him taking me to his favorite bar and leaving me there with the barmaids who would feed me and look after me. And as I got older and grew into adulthood, the distance between us uh, continued to increase. You could not describe anything that we had between one another as any type of relationship. At best, I think you could describe it as two acquaintances. My motivating factor for wanting to reconcile with my father was the arrival of my first child. You know, I'm not sure why I felt the deep, deep desire to reconcile with him. At that point, I really wasn't walking with God. Um, but I had this desire, this deep desire that I could not put aside for the whole time until I reached out to him and we talked. And as difficult as that conversation was for both of us, it was the first time that I saw light in his face and that there was potentially the opportunity for him and I to, to be redeemed together. As we talked and time went on, I learned more about him and his childhood, and I, I began to see my father with new eyes, eyes that revealed he had no capacity, he had no tools, and most of all, he had no faith to deal with his own brokenness. You know, I've been asked the question, was I truly able to forgive him? And the only thing I can say is I was. It wasn't a, we never went back. Once we closed the chapter on that difficult time, he and I never looked back. We just didn't. There were, we knew that there were more important things um, that we were put together to do. 
And as the years went on, I, I, I watched God develop him into a wonderful, wonderful grandfather that I aspire one day to be. In February of 2018, he died at the age of 82. I'm thankful that over the last 18 years of his life, we were able to learn to love one another. God put it on my heart to reach out to him. There's nothing been more impactful in my life as a son and as a father than this reconciliation. So I would urge each of you, I, I would plead to reconcile. Our God has a heart of reconciliation. It will change your life, whether it's a reconciliation with one of your loved ones or reconciliation with our Heavenly Father. At the end of that reconciliation is a peace of mind and a legacy that will continue to pay fruit for you and your family forever. What a powerful testimony of God's healing grace at work in Tim's life. You see, reconciliation doesn't always mean that all the anger evaporates and is gone. And it doesn't mean that you're a failure just because you still might get angry sometimes at that painful wrong that was done to you. We can never erase a past. We can only heal the pain that's been left behind. When we are wronged and that wrong becomes a part of our life, we can reconcile. And when we reconcile, we begin to heal the hate that we have for the person who committed the wrong to us. It doesn't change the past and we can't undo the consequences of actions. The reality of evil and its damage to human beings is not magically undone somehow. It can still make our life difficult. But we can do it without hate. We can do it without resentment. We can do it without bitterness.